Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Through high school and into university, I had um, an overly simplistic understanding of the Christian faith. My functional model of the faith was a simple series of steps that someone could follow to be a Christian, and those would end in being a part of the kingdom of God. So my working model was to first be a living human being, then hear the gospel, agree with the statement that Jesus is God and died for your sins, pray to accept Jesus into your heart, be baptized, and then attempt to live as a Christian. So try not to sin, read the Bible, attend church, and occasionally tell others about Jesus. It turned out that while none of that was wrong, it was really incomplete. It was a faith that was too small to be relevant to all the different parts of my life. So things like work and school, friends, uh, pain and suffering that I experienced and that I saw in the people all around me, none of those things really fit that well into that simplistic faith. And so, I ended up leaving those parts of my life and those, those parts of life in general as separate from my faith. And it was also, my faith was also too simplistic in that it treated facts and belief separately from matters of heart and devotion. The reality is that while believing in Jesus and following the way of Jesus makes sense, the Christian faith does not deny any part of reality, any part of life or human experience. Instead, it brings everything that we have in life, this life, together. It integrates all of them into this beautiful life that God intended from the very beginning. Everything from relationships, work, fun, money, uh, the purpose of our lives, and even redeeming pain and suffering. Everything in life comes together in the Christian faith. I definitely did not understand this or, or hold this belief as true in high school. And so I lived a life that was fragmented with uh, the parts of my life that I felt or that I thought fit with Jesus were treated one way and the rest, I did what I thought was good. Now. Laura, my wife, uh, used to tell me on occasion that I lived, uh, a, my life was a path of roses, and there was some truth to, truth to that. Nothing in my life uh, or in my experience at that time just like slammed into my simplistic faith and forced me to overhaul how I thought about things. Instead, God's been pretty gentle with me and allowed me to grow and learn gradually. Don't think that's the case, though, with the people that John is writing to. This is a letter to people who are in crisis. Mike has explained in previous weeks that this faith community has, that John's writing to has been torn apart. Their leaders have abandoned them and abandoned the faith in favor of Gnostic teachings. And so the people who are left behind in, in this faith community, they're just reeling. And they're questioning what they thought they, they knew, what they thought they could trust and was true. I think John understood that if he just presented the faith, the Christian faith, in a single linear logical progression, like we see Paul do sometimes, 
that that would fall short. For some people, any given simple explanation wouldn't resonate with their experience. Um, for others, it wouldn't address all of the real-life concerns and struggles they've had as, as a result of their faith community's crisis. So instead, John's taken a, a different approach. First John is not linear. It's not a step-by-step -step logical walk through the fit Christian faith. Instead, John takes a, a more poetic approach, which can seem confusing when you read straight through. It can seem like he's circling back on himself, like uh, maybe even that, that uh, he's, when he says one thing leads to another, and then in, in the passage right after, he says the second thing actually leads to the first. That can be confusing. But I think there, what John's doing uh, can be understood as... Uh, there, there's kind of an analogy that I thought of that might be helpful. If we take a gemstone, a well-cut gemstone, and we take a photo of it, we look at the photo, we can see that it's beautiful, but we can't appreciate it in, uh, in its full beauty unless we can look at it from different angles. We can hold it up and look at one facet. We can turn it and see how the light refracts differently when we look at it from a different side. Once we can do that, we can we can appreciate far more how the facets, how the different sides interact with each other and interact with the light. I think that's kind of what John is doing in this letter. He's holding up the truth, which he says, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's holding up this truth of the Christian faith and looking at it from different angles and different passages. He's looking through the different facets of the, face, of, of the faith and seeing how they interact with each other, how they fit together as a whole into a, a, a complete life. So in this passage that we come to, in, it's in chapter 5, which is the last chapter, and we've, so we've already, John's already looked at a number of different facets of the faith, and Mike has walked us through a, a number of these, and, and Jordan as well. And so this, this is almost one of the last ones. So there's nothing that's really new and novel here, but John is looking at the faith from a different, from a new angle. He's looking at it from the angle of trust in Jesus, belief in Jesus, and its place in our life as followers of Christ. So let's walk through the passage, at least the first portion, starting with the first portion. So in the first paragraph, he starts with belief that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. He's brought up belief in Christ before in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Um, so this is, again, not a novel concept, but this is going to start the framing to frame out what all the implications of our belief in Jesus. In the first sentence, he, he moves on to the first implication. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. Being God's children, again, not new. He covered this in, in the beginning of chapter 3. The next is like is this similar it's loving god and his children which he brought up in chapter three and and covered extensively in chapter four as well so and he's, he's so he says and everyone who loves the father loves his children too we know we love god's children if we love god 
and obey his commandments, which is the next implication. He brought this up. This was the facet that he looked at in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Next, for every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. John's talked about victory over the world in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, and he's talking, when, he, when he says this, he's talking about living God's way instead of living the world's way. He finishes off the paragraph saying, and who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So all of this, in this entire paragraph, is framed out, is sandwiched in belief in Jesus. This is a new angle, but none of these concepts are novel to the book. But he is saying that once we believe in Jesus, we become God's children, we can't help but love God and our brothers and sisters, we obey God happily, and we defeat the evil, this evil world by living God's way instead of whatever we or our culture believe are, is good. All of this comes when we believe in Jesus. Now we see how important it is that we believe in Jesus, but what does John mean when he says believe? It might seem obvious, but it's actually one of the big things that I misunderstood for a long time. Because I thought when the Bible says believe, it says it's talking about mental assent. So when I hear a statement, I believe and think in my head that that is true. It's just cold, hard fact, and that's all there is to it. But there's a difference between mental assent like that and the word John uses here. The word John uses in Greek is pistuevo, uh, butchered in an, uh, Canadian accent. And the definition here is to believe, put one's faith in, trust with an implication that actions based on that trust may follow. So I think this, uh, this difference between mental assent and belief in a person is illustrated with uh, two scenarios that I have here. So if you're willing, please close your eyes and I'll walk through these two scenarios. So the first is this. You're sitting in a waiting room of some kind on your phone and you happen to click on some article from some source titled, Improve Your Life with This Sage Guidance. You scroll down to the main point because internet articles take forever to get to their point and you find it. It says, your life and your health will improve if you reduce your time spent on your phone and do these things daily. Exercise for half an hour, eat three healthy meals, and sleep a minimum of eight hours a night. So that's the first scenario. What is your reaction? Do you agree that the statement is true? How likely are you to act on that guidance and change how you live? So now here's the second scenario. I want you to think of a person who you respect, who you know loves you deeply. This could be a parent, a sibling, pastor, spouse, mentor, or friend. And they ask, you, they ask to get together with you for a conversation. So you meet at a coffee shop, you find a, a somewhat private place to talk, 
And they let you know that they've been concerned for you for a while. They're worried that you seem absent from your own life, that you seem overstressed, and their concern is that you're suffering uh, needlessly. Then they recommend that you cut back the amount of time you spend on your phone, that you exercise for half an hour a day, that you eat healthy meals, and sleep for eight hours a night, starting with a month at a time. So that's the second scenario. If you can open your eyes, what is your reaction? What is your gut reaction? If you're like me, and I suspect others, you're far more likely to listen to the person that you respect and love compared to some stranger on who posted an article on the internet. This second scenario is what it is, is, is closer to what it is to trust in a person. And it's what John is talking about when he speaks of belief or trust in Jesus. It's to trust a person and that what they say is good and how to live is true. To the, is true to the, and we believe it to the point that we voluntarily will overhaul our life and our thinking based on what they say. In my experience, probably uh, the closest relationship that I have in, between people like this is with my daughter. So when I taught her how to ride her bike, I let her have training wheels only for like the first two times I took her, I took her outside to ride. And just until she got comfortable with the concept of pedaling. And after that, I took them off. She was nervous, but I told her that I would hold her up and stop her from falling until she was ready to go on her own. She trusted me and she continued to ride. Um, and I ran along beside her. Anytime the bike fell, I would pull her off and make sure that she didn't fall. And I held up my end and she didn't get hurt in that whole time. Once her balance was good enough though, I told her that I thought she was ready for me to let go. And that she might fall a few times, but she would be okay. And this was the only way to learn. She believed me. And even though she did fall a couple of times and she got scraped up and bruised, she learned how to ride. And she was happy with that. She believed what I said and she placed her trust in me because she knows me. She knows how much I love her at a gut level and she trusted that I knew enough about riding a bike that I could teach her. And so she acted on what I said. Now in that example and in the second scenario, the definition of belief emphasizes that this is belief in a person. So naturally John goes on to explain why we should trust in Jesus in particular. So when we look at verses six through eight, it says, and Jesus Christ was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross, not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit who is truth confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the spirit, the water and the blood, and all three agree. If you're like me, uh, is not super obvious, so I had to lean on commentaries. And it turns out that uh, people who are much smarter than me generally agree on what this means. And the testimony of water 
is talking about the baptism of Jesus and also his ministry. John's, uh, Jesus' baptism is a witness of God because God said from heaven at Jesus' baptism, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit came as a dove and rested on him. So this is God saying, this is Jesus, he is who I say he is. That's a witness. But Jesus' baptism also kicks off his public ministry, and so his whole ministry can be seen as, it, as included in this testimony of water. And this, this, his ministry includes obeying the Father in everything, it, Jesus, all of Jesus' teaching and all of his healing. The second witness listed here is the blood, Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And wrapped up in this is forgiveness of sins, freedom from sin, freedom from death and the gift of eternal life, and adoption into God's family. As a, a small aside, we can recall that First John, John is addressing a community whose leaders abandoned their faith in favor of Gnosticism. So when John says, not by water only, but by water and blood, this might suggest that the Gnostics would not dispute that Jesus was a, was a person, was a human, was baptized and ministered while he was alive. They probably, they might not even deny that his teachings were good. And the same is true today. It's pretty common for people that you talk to out in the world to agree that Jesus was a historic figure who was baptized and taught and ministered and that his teachings were good and valuable. But Jesus didn't come just to be baptized, to teach, and to minister. He shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, and this can't be set aside. The final witness is the Spirit who witnesses inside of us pointing to Jesus. These three all come together and agree, and they're all from God. This is why we can trust in Jesus. In verses 9 and 10, it says, Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his Son. All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his Son. We can believe it when multiple people tell us the, uh, a consistent stories, tell us something consistent. It's pretty normal to believe that. When I first moved to Hamilton, I was looking for new restaurants. I didn't know any of them. I looked, I, we wanted to have Italian food one time. I looked up reviews on Google, found a place just down the street that seemed pretty good, went there, and it was great. Normal to believe human testimony. It turns out humans are also fallible, so when I looked up pizza, and I went to a different place that was really close by, and it also had reasonable reviews, and it was cold circles of garbage. It was terrible. Um, it's really unfortunate. Humans and their testimony are fallible, even when we have multiple people saying the same thing. And if we can believe humans, and we do, we can absolutely trust God's infallible word. We can trust what God has revealed about Jesus and orient our lives around this truth. And John's point in the second half is this matter is critical enough that we don't have the option of being neutral. If we don't respond in trust to what God has revealed, 
to this testimony directly from God, then we're calling God a liar. Through Jesus, we can know God and trust in him. We can trust that he is who he says he is. We can trust that what he said in his earthly ministry and teaching is true, that, and that what he accomplished in his death and resurrection is true. Out of that trust flows everything that John has talked about. Loving as we can love as Jesus loves, loving God and our brothers and sisters. We can live God's way, overcoming the world in obedience in God's command, to God's commands. We can see that this is the way to true living, and this is the way to eternal life. This does leave the last question, the question, how can we move toward trust in Jesus? And I would say there are, there are kind of two steps. The first is to recognize where that trust is missing in our lives. This can be indicated by some kind of habitual sin that we live in. Or it can be something a little more subtle, like a difference between how we live and what God says is good in Scripture. It can be a difference in how we use our money versus what Scripture says about money and how it's to be treated. It can be a difference between what God says about work and how we behave at work. It can be a difference between how, what Jesus teaches about how we treat people and what we see in Jesus' life about how, and how he treats people and how we treat different kinds of people. Second step after recognizing where we lack this trust is to repent of our unbelief, of our lack of trust, and ask for help. Every time I come up against this kind of, I come up against this lack of trust in my life, I find it remarkably helpful. There's a story from chapter 9. A father brought his son to Jesus for healing, and he explains this condition that his son has, and he ends in his explanation with, have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean, if I can, Jesus asked? Anything is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And then Jesus proceeds to heal the child. We can learn from this man's example. He's aware that he had some trust, but that it wasn't complete. So he asked for help. I've had this experience before, being stuck in habitual sin, that I... I'm so, and I try to stop it on my own. I re, I'm so frustrated with myself and my inability to change on my own that I, I come to God and repent. And I ask God to change my heart. Pretty soon I realized that my prayer was answered. I was finally, I finally believed that this part, in this part of my life also, God's way is better than mine. And obeying his commands was no longer difficult. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying 
that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.